Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Francesca Giacco, who shares a gorgeous excerpt from her debut novel, Six Days in Rome. Here's more from Francesca. My name is Francesca Giacco. I'm a writer. I live in New York, and I'm the author of the novel Six Days in Rome. As much as my novel is an ode to Rome, it's also a tribute to traveling alone, which is an experience that I think forces a person to slow down and pay attention, which for me has always involved being in close proximity to my imagination. And this is true for me in writing and in living. In these paragraphs I'll read, Amelia, who is the main character of the novel, is wandering the city center. She's using these quiet moments and the evocative surroundings to process what's brought her to this point in the book. She's dealing with heartbreak in a few different ways, and she's considering the direction she wants to take. In a city that's constantly reminding you of its age, the Roman ghetto looks and feels even older. There are statistics carved into the sides of buildings, memorializing the Jews deported to almost certain death in 1943, or even further back when the popes decided this tiny neighborhood was the only place they were permitted to live, in squalor, walled away from the rest of the city. There's no shortage of pain that's been inflicted in this four-block radius, under watch of these statues and ruined temples. But when I try to envision it, to sympathetically picture or feel that struggle and fear and loss, all I see are well-kept piazzas, restaurants playing American pop music at full volume, and quaint streets tightly wound and unraveling. A couple browses near me in a shop selling leather goods, a tannery that, the owner's son tells me, has been open and family-run for 200 years. The bones in his wrist are half hidden by a worn bracelet, deep brown, likely warmed by his skin, marbled by water and soap and sweat. The woman consults with her husband over the price of a wallet, her earlobe straining under the weight of a heavy hoop. I turn a pebbled coin purse over in my hands, resist the urge to smell it and almost walk out, until I'm stopped by a pad of good paper covered in leather the color of cut grass. It's displayed next to a painted cup filled with pens, not the width or weight I usually like, but one of these will do. I wander toward Octavia's portico, trying to see it as the gateway it once was, an entry that enclosed a gathering place and protected temples and libraries, or so some signage tells me, its brief explanation spelled out in five different languages, side by side. Chunks of what used to be its roof are missing, looking like they've been bitten out. Augustus built it for his sister, in a type of familial gesture that doesn't really exist anymore though I like to imagine that maybe the roles brothers and sisters played for one another haven't changed that much. Him being a defender, a sounding board, or lightening the mood when needed. As a sister, if you were a good strategist or ally, you got a portico or a theater or a war fought in your name, in place of any real demonstrable power. Jack doesn't speak up for me often, but when he does, it's for good reason and with conviction. I notice a man taking a picture of one of the walls. 
He gets as close as he can, legs straining the chains of the barricade. He's not focused on the whole structure or a still-standing column or even the carving at the top, but on two blocks of stone next to each other but different colors. He thrusts his arm forward, focusing his camera on the mismatch, this one piece of the foundation different from all the others. There's a smile on his face as he examines the screen. What does that mean to him, one part separate from the rest? I'm standing under the open window of an adjacent building, designed and built to blend in with the ruins. A voice is trickling out, and it takes a few moments of too seamless understanding before I realize it's speaking English. At first, I think he might be the designer of whatever space he's describing, but the forced friendliness and hint of desperation suggest a real estate agent instead. I linger and listen, trying to match the enthusiasm in his voice to what he might be showing them. Vaulted ceilings, intricately tiled floors, maybe a faded fresco running the length of a wall. A deep voice says something about the width of a doorway. A woman, probably at his side, murmurs agreement. Not to worry, the man assures them. Everything can be customized. Is that the right expression, blank canvas? He must know it is. This place is an opportunity, he tells them, reiterates that this or that can be fixed or adjusted to give them what they want without sacrificing any historical detail. No one else, he insists, has the outline of an ancient column bursting through their living room ceiling. What is that, he asks, if not a conversation starter? What I'm hearing and seeing belongs to no one else. And would another person even notice or appreciate it all, pay this degree of attention to these particular details? These scraps of life I likely wouldn't even notice if someone were here with me. I take a deep breath, and with it, a rare calm is starting to find its way in, a feeling I always wish for and rarely get. When it does bubble up, it leaves me far too easily. This lightness, or whatever it is, feels comfortable or safe to flourish only when I'm alone. The moment I slow down or stop somewhere or open my mouth to speak, I risk losing it. I know this from experience, so I keep moving. Thank you so much again to Francesca for sharing. You can purchase Six Days in Rome anywhere books are sold and read more of Francesca's work online at francescagiacco.com. Now here's my interview with Lisa Tadeo. Let me start by saying this. Lisa Tadeo's work is anything but slow. From her acclaimed work of nonfiction, Three Women, to her unforgettable debut novel, Animal, Lisa's writing is not merely an invitation into a story, but a rallying cry to recognize the full scope of the human experience. Time and time again, her readers are pulled into honest and often devastating examinations of rage, grief, and what it means to be a person in the world. The same can be said for her latest book, Ghost Lover, a collection of stories that, quote, brings to life the fever of obsession, the blindness of love, and the mania of grief. For Lisa, life moves quickly, especially now, but her enduring exploration of grief creates space to talk about the often slow process of overcoming heartbreak or pain. And because of this, her stories stay with you long after the last page. And in this interview, Lisa shared more about the pace that drives her practice, why she's drawn to short stories, and what she's learned from writing about people. I spoke with Lisa on a hectic day in late April and, once again, was humbled by her honesty, both on and off the page. But if you're new to Lisa's work, I don't want to share too much more. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Lisa Tadeo, author of Ghost Lover, Animal, and Three Women.
I value peace and serenity. I have a lot of anxiety, so outside of writing, I really, you know, it's funny, even as I'm saying that, I'm like, well, hold on a second. I value peace and serenity, but I don't do much to try to get myself fed. <laughs> You know, I really love just sitting at long tables, eating dinners with friends and my family. That's the biggest thing I value. I work towards that being like how I get to release. I mean, I think it's probably a necessary contrast to a lot of the themes in your work, which often deals with rage, grief, pain, difficult, but necessary themes. And I think just on the subject of peace, what stories have been bringing you peace and serenity lately? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't really had a lot of time to do much reading or watching, but I've gone back. I always go back to William Trevor's collected stories. Whenever I'm a little bit anxious, it feels like a bomb to me. His way of writing, the way that he talks about life, I always go back to William Trevor. Is there a line of his that always resonates with you? Not his. I mean, yes, of course, many. Not that I can think of right now. But the line that I always think about in things that I both write and read is art is meant to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And that's something that works for me on both sides in both producing in my own writing and in reading other people's writing. I like to I am the disturbed who likes to be comforted. So when I write, I'm not so much trying to disturb the comfortable as I am trying to comfort the disturbed. But I think that if the other effect of that is, you know, the comfortable thinking about the disturbed more, that's a real big goal of mine. I mean, it definitely comes across. I was just thinking as we talk about books, I actually just finished Tova Ditlipson's The Trouble with Happiness. Have you read any of her work? No, I have not, but I really want to. Those stories were like very quietly heartbreaking, but I kind of recognized a lot of parallels in your own work, just in the sense of her character searching for something beyond feeling disturbed or unsettled in their daily life and just the general feelings of longing. And there's a line that I feel like you would appreciate in one of her stories, but basically one of the characters characters was musing that if you're feeling betrayed you are betrayed oh wow that is so (laughs) I have to tell you that that has got to be one of the most apropos things that I've heard for where I'm at right now Hmm. so I have to really thank you for that (laughs) yeah it was just kind of you're going along she talks about a lot of domestic life and I don't know just kind of come across a line like that it's almost like we don't know how to trust our own minds until you read something like that Mm -hmm. exactly that's really great wow and I think just on the subject of your work, we'll obviously get into Ghost Lover shortly, but I also saw that you recently guest edited another magazine's document section. Yes. And you wrote a really riveting introduction about time. It's something that I'm interested in, at least with slow stories, especially as it relates to our relationship with pace and slowness. And there was a line in that letter where you said, I'm itching to crawl out to read the bedtime story article to finish some notion of work, which is an illusion because work can never be done and will I never exist in the present. And I'm sure at this moment, thinking about the present is probably a tricky thing, just given that you're pulled in a million different directions. But how do you bring yourself back to the present as a writer? And what does the present mean as a writer? 
Oh God, that's a great question. I don't know. I've never fully lived in the present. I meant what I said in that intro. It was not, it was not written out of, out of nowhere. I don't know how to pull myself back. Like I've tried meditation. I haven't found the exact right form of meditation that will work for me. And it's really hard for me to pull myself back in. A lot of my writing is about the past. I am stuck in the past in so many ways. And I guess writing is the way that I stay in the present. I guess. It's so funny. You've given me a couple of really lovely things to think about. But I think that that is exactly right. That that when I write, I am in the present, even if I'm writing about the past. Is it almost like you're watching yourself write? Do you daydream? I'm just trying to understand your psyche too, because it's probably very time consuming to go into the past and kind of mine for things. Do I daydream? You know, I that's what I said when I was like, I guess when I'm writing, I'm in the present. If I'm walking down the street, sometimes I see something on the ground that like makes me think of something from my past. I like write it down because I want to sort of unpack it more later. So that's kind of what I do writing wise. I know it's probably a loaded question and one that can change (laughs) every day, but in terms of just current projects, you're currently working on the production of Three Women. That's another medium. You're kind of seeing your words come to life in a really life-changing way. But I'm curious how that project has also challenged or impacted your notion of time and what it means to be present. It's been really, really hard. (laughs) Um, It's been really hard because it takes up literally, I mean, like constant sort of text messages of, oh, we have to change our hair to this. We need to know in the next 45 seconds. So it's that kind of stuff that is, it's really hard to manage time. And to write and to like, when you're constantly rewriting scenes to fit time for production, it's just, it's a 24 hour a day job and it has impacted me a lot. It's been a lot of work to try to figure out how to get around it and how to keep writing and stay sane. Are there elements that have slowed you down in some way, even if it's been forced? What is the tension there of the things that do need that level of detail and attention? I think sometimes it's other people's stress and having to manage that while managing your own. What about creatively? It's hard to be creative when you're on a 45-minute deadline. It's really hard. (laughs) Well, I guess sometimes what they say is true. Less can be more. (laughs) You're like, sure. (laughs) Well, let's talk about Ghost Lover 2. An incredible collection that, again, kind of brings your long-standing explorations of desire, power, and relationships into focus. I know that you've published these stories over the years, maybe in various forms, but why did it feel like the right time to put this collection out into the world? You know, I've really wanted to help future generations of young women. When I was in my 20s living in Manhattan, I was very alone. I had lost my family. I was, you know, it was hard for me to get through the days and dating and doing all of that, trying to sort of distract myself from the bigger grief of having lost my parents, like sort of brought its own level of panic with it. And so Ghost Lover is kind of my it's it's a love letter for me in a sense to all young women 
you know, I remember sitting on the floor eating takeout of our apartments with my friends at the time and just saying like, you know, is he ever going to call again? Is she, am I just tell me I'm going to see her again? All of that sort of stuff, that anxiety that we put into love because we just want someone to sort of see us and love us is so trenchant and powerful. And I just wanted to sort of give that message to the world of I've been there and you're not alone. We definitely need that reminder. And I think in another interview, it might have been with Dua Lipa, you mentioned that you would just love nothing more than to sit and write short stories all day. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about a short story that compels you? It just feels like a compact zone where you can, both for the reader and the writer, you can just sort of go in and out. And for me, the best short stories pack a sort of wallop of what life is about, but in like a sort of controlled manner of like, you know, just being able to digest and have a mini spiritual experience, hopefully in a sense. And, you know, I think time is so sort of, we're so pressed for time these days that for me, being able to go in and out of something like that is just, has always made me feel the safest. I feel like for me, I almost have to put more investment into a short story. Oh, really? Just because you're kind of dipping into a moment, as a reader anyway, kind of want to make sure I get as much, I don't know, not context, but soak in as many of the details so I can really understand I also feel like I've learned that I really like linked collections too. Oh yeah, me too. I do too. Linked collections are like the kind of best bridge between a novel and a collection. You should definitely check out Cara Blue Adams, You Never Get It Back, and then Brandon Taylor's Filthy Animals. Oh yeah, I have read Filthy Animals. I love it. Beautiful. I know. I won't add more to your never-ending to-do list, (laughs) but so many good collections. You know, it's interesting. This is a question I've been asking a lot of writers on this podcast because I think it's something that we're all sort of dealing with in any context of life. It's also something that you've naturally explored in your work. But I'm curious, in your opinion, in what ways is writing about grief the same as writing about power or about love? I think that in grief, you know, there is a sense of power almost because everything else falls away and you're like, I don't give a flying F about anything because I'm feeling grief right now or fear or panic. So that for me is probably the way that grief and power intersect. When there's, when everything else falls away, there's a power in, in like, okay, that's it. And now I have to start from scratch. And I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, it does. And I'm curious too, with grief or just generally when you're writing, are you writing towards any sort of resolution or is it really just to kind of get thoughts down on a page? I think I've always been looking for a way to deal with grief. I think I've been looking for a way to deal with grief for a very long time. And yes, that's that's the main resolution I'm always looking for when it comes to that. I'm looking for what the meaning is in a sense. Do you think you'll ever find it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. My next book is a book about grief. So hopefully that is uh, where I'll find it. But at the same time, it's also something that I'm really nervous about really diving into. So yeah, but I mean, that is what I'm planning. Excited to read that. Maybe a little nervous, but in the best way. And I think the other thing about grief, whether you're experiencing it, reading about it, writing about it, is that it really does force you to see and to look. And I think that's such a compelling 
part of the stories in this collection is that you're really taking the reader into the psyche of these characters, making them see things that they might not want to, you know, be looking for in the first place. And in your story, A Suburban Weekend, there was a line where one of the main characters, Fern, she marveled at, quote, how many dead people are still alive. (laughs) And that was kind of jolting in a way. It's a painful statement, but it's so true to how we edit or numb ourselves to get through the world. So what have you learned about looking at people and writing about people, both in fiction and in nonfiction? I have learned that, you know, we are so afraid. Fear rules us all. And fear rules me for sure. When I say all, I mean, you know, any of us who are sort of going through stuff, I think that it's always sort of a sense of fear and shame that just is what drives us to kind of make bad decisions or any kind of decision at all that is mean to another person. It's always comes from like fear and, and sense of shame. That's the biggest thing I've learned. The uncertainty when it swirls into fear. It's something I've learned to carry around in my pocket and just kind of acknowledge that it's there. Do you ever think it can be productive? Do I think fear can be productive? God, that's a good question. I I don't know. Right now I'm in a state of total fear. So it's really hard for me to answer that question. I'm in a state of fear because I'm working on this show. It's a 24 hour a day thing. And I'm trying to find childcare and and dealing with all of that stuff is just a full time issue. And worrying about my daughter when she's not with me is a full time thing. So I'm just in a generalized state of complete panic right now. Um, So do I think it can be productive? My answer right now is no. (laughs) So you might have already answered my next question, but looking at your entire sort of practice, how would you describe your relationship with pace and how has it evolved? You know, I was always working at a fast pace. Now the amount of things I have to do are kind of overtaking the pace that I can even begin to Pace has kind of been swallowed whole by this machine of television. So I think I had a good pace at one point and now I'm like, the pace is just overtaken the work, to be perfectly honest. I'm so sorry, Rachel. I feel like I feel like I'm in like a wild place and I'm just being really totally honest. It's a lot. And yeah, I'm feeling a lot of things. <laughs> I would be kind of surprised if you weren't. I mean, I was just so happy you even had time to do this interview. So thank you for that. Of course. You know, if you can slow down, what parts of your writing process do you get to luxuriate in? My favorite thing is, you know, writing when everyone's gone to bed because I feel like I don't need to take care of anyone at that time and no one's writing emails to me. But like last night, for example, I came home from set at 3 a.m. and my daughter woke up and I, you know, have been going into her room and snuggling with her. And she was like, come snuggle. And I was like, I still have more work to do. So she came and slept on my lap while I continued working. I mean, when I say it's constant, I'm not exaggerating in the slightest. But it's worth it. I'll let you know. (laughs) I mean, it's so much. We're just at a place right now that it's like, it's it's a wild amount of work and um, and the pace is kind of insane. I'm just always curious what comes to mind when someone hears the words slow stories. What does that evoke? Something that, a William Trevor story, to be honest, like whenever I've seen slow stories and I mean, seen, listened or seen it on my schedule for this week, it evokes a sense of a William Trevor piece where you can fall into it gently and easily, take your time with it, be in a sort of good emotional space. 
and yeah, just kind of take a breath to listen to someone else's way of life. I think the listening part is key, the level of attention. Yeah. Do you consider what you do to be slow in the sense that it forces people to kind of engage in a way that they might not normally? I don't know if I would call it slow, what I do necessarily. (laughs) I feel like it's a little bit more fast. It's funny. One of my friends who read Ghost Lover was like, you just don't let people come up from air. And I love that about you, which I really Mm -hmm. liked. I mean, I really like that. But I also, you know, I'm like, oh, God, I don't want people to feel like they can't come up for air. So I don't feel like my stories are slow. I think that I have often aspired to write stories that are slow, like a William Trevor story, like an Alice Monroe story. But I think that that's not kind of where my talent lies, to be perfectly honest. My pace and everything about the way that my anxiety works is kind of more like, go, 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 go. That's fair. I'm learning about how I read through this conversation because everything that you've written, it's forced me to slow down to really make sure I'm doing the story justice. So while I agree with what your friend said, I think there is an element that forces you to really just dive in, even when it's uncomfortable, if that's worth anything. (laughs) It is. It is. It's worth a lot, actually. Thank you. I think another exploration with slow stories that I'm always curious about, especially when I'm talking to artists or writers, is how operating or creating in our digital age kind of impacts their process. And so has there been any revelation in terms of the role of technology or social media in terms of how you're connecting with people or thinking about storytelling at this point? It's so hard. Oh my God, it's so hard because generally when I'm writing, I try to not look at my emails and stuff. But when I'm writing in this sort of a space, I have to because it's all, well, I can't write that seat anymore because that person's not going into that room. We can't afford that room anymore. So it's like, A constant influx of notes coming in while writing kind of is the antithesis of what I think most writers or any artist would want while they're working, which I think makes for a very, very, very challenging space. You learned any ways to cope or have any advice? For writers who might be listening. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that the next time I do this, I will have more information. I think I came into this kind of not knowing a lot, listening to the way other people had done things before, which is not necessarily what works for me. And I think it's hard whenever you are new at something to kind of bring your new ideas into it. People who have been working in it for a long time are kind of like, well, that's not the way it goes. And it's like, okay, well, this is the way I'm doing it because it's my process. There's also, you know, to be perfectly very, very honest in every world, but specifically, not specifically, but I mean, as I'm finding very much so in the sort of TV slash Hollywood world, it's men have been in charge for so long that now that there are women in charge, I think that it's really hard You know, I remember reading something about David Foster Wallace getting upset that someone had changed, like taken a period of his out of something he had written. Whereas, and and that's something in TV, male writers, it's like, that's the scene I wrote, shoot that scene. With females being the creators and in charge, it's like, oh, no, we can't do that. You got to redo that. You got to do There's a sense of not being deferential to a woman that I am very conscious of on a daily basis. And I think it mostly comes from other women, to be honest. And I think that we've been sort of socialized that this is the way it is. And this is the way it has to keep 
being. And at the same time that we, you know, I bring this up a lot in my work and in other ways. It's, I I just feel like the next time I do this, I'm going to be very clear. I think I walked into things, I'm, I'm being really honest, and I probably shouldn't be being this honest on a podcast. But I'm being really honest, because I'm going through something right now, which is really, really difficult. And it feels like if I had walked into this and kind of you know, said, I'm the boss, and we're doing it my way, it would have been all fine. But what happened instead is I walked in and said, what can I learn from everyone? How can you guys, you know, which I think is the right way to be a human in the world. But I don't think that certain jobs are built for that. And when people think that you're going to be open to manipulation, in a sense, they will manipulate you. That was a hard lesson to learn. And it's done a lot to sort of hurt my trust level of other people. And that's just, that's a specific thing for the actors, the directors, everybody on this show is absolutely fantastic and brilliant. And I'm so lucky to have that. But there are areas that I have felt from sort of the top level people that there's a sort of like, oh, you know, we can just tell her what to do. And I decided that that wasn't going to happen anymore. <laughs> so my motto is now I know. That's a hard one. I mean, I think it does kind of require an enforced stillness to kind of stop, look around and take the reins back in a way. Totally. Well, I have no doubt it's going to come together. I think everything has ebb and flow, but as you kind of continue to ruminate on this process, your work, your life. Is there a question that you hope people start asking you more often? Am I going to be okay? And the answer is yes. That's always my goal in writing. I want people to know I have been there. I have been where you are, not where everyone is, but I have been in dark moments and I always want people to feel less alone in their dark moments. And so that's what Ghost Lover was really for. Like I have been there and you'll get through it. was Lisa Tadeo, author of Ghost Lover, Animal, and Three Women. You can purchase Lisa's books anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Lisa on social at Lisa D. Tadeo. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.